Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What is up? It's your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Joining me from the Windy City, Josh Modell, executive editor. What's up, Elia? Hey, hey, man. We have a very cool show that you put together, Josh. Scott Avitt of the Avitt Brothers in conversation with Clem Snide's Eve Barzilay. Tell me, how did this one come together? Well, it was sort of a natural fit because Eve just put out the first Clem Snide record in about five years called Forever Just Beyond, and it was produced and even some of the songs co-written by Mr. Scott Avett of the Avett Brothers. A gorgeous sound to that record, I have to say. It's fantastic. Now, Scott Avett is, of course, one of the lead singers, along with his brother Seth, of the folk rock megastars, the Avett Brothers. Scott is a jack of all trades. He plays banjo, harmonica, drums, piano, and guitar. He's also a songwriter and outside of music is actually a pretty amazing painter. Did you know this, Josh? I had no idea. Now, the Concord, North Carolina-based Avid Brothers' last record came just last year. That was Closer Than Together. From that album, here's Tell the Truth. Tell the truth to yourself And the rest will fall in place Tell the truth to yourself Classic Avid Brothers sound right there. Super great. Now, Josh, I understand that the Avid Brothers are Clem Snide fans. Yeah, this whole relationship came about in kind of a really fun way. Um, in 2016, the Avid Brothers were covering a, a relatively obscure Clem Snide song called The Ballad of God's Love, which somehow made its way to Eve. And he reached out to Scott Avid and said, hey, thanks, you know, thanks for covering my song. And they ended up kind of becoming friendly and eventually making this record together. And Clem Snide's been around for quite a while. I remember listening to them back in the 90s. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Their first recordings were made in actually in 1991. Eve has been the only constant in Clem Snide since way back then. And they had kind of a really weird, interesting career trajectory. They were signed to Sire by music business legend Seymour Stein. He of the Bell and Sebastian song? Uh, the very one. And, you know, famous for signing everybody from the Ramones and Blondie and the Smiths, I think. The Smiths, yeah. But... That fairy tale did not work out for Clem Snide in the way that it did for a lot of those other bands. They ended up getting dropped and having a, a great career and put out a bunch of great records in the aughts. By the 2010s, Eve was a little bit adrift. He was going through some personal and professional turmoil, sporadically releasing music, playing house shows rather than touring with a band. And he ended up declaring bankruptcy, losing his house. But all that bad stuff kind of led to Forever Just Beyond, which is, in my eyes as a huge Clem Snide fan, one of the best things he's ever done, you know, all these years later. He calls Avit an angel in the process, uh, a guy who helped him produce the record and also ultimately helped him get it released. Let's check out the song Roger Ebert from Clem Snide's Forever Just Beyond. There is a vastness that can't be contained or described as a thought in the flesh of our brain. It's everything, everywhere, future and past. Really beautiful stuff. Josh, you really are a big Clem Snide fan. I have to admit that I am. I, I may be the biggest Clem Snide fan in the world, but I may be number two to NPR's <laughs> Stephen Thompson, who's also an old friend of mine, and we kind of love the band together. I've known Eve 
since the 90s. I saw them play a bunch back then. And he's one of those songwriters that always makes me think there's no justice in the music business. You're not wrong. He should be massive. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, but he's not. But maybe this record, which has gotten a ton of attention, uh, partly due to the involvement of Scott Avett, maybe it's the one that'll reach him new heights. It certainly has great songs. It really does. And, and it struck me that there is a much more spiritual bent on this record than we may have heard on a typical Clem Snight LP. Yeah, it's funny. He's had a really interesting kind of spiritual journey. He was born in Israel, raised Jewish, but personally and musically was very cynical about religion and very cynical about God. And on this record, it feels like with maybe some influence from Scott David, who is a, a more spiritual guy, has come around to believing something. What exactly is not clear from this conversation, but the talk does center in large part around spirituality and the role that it plays in both of these artists' lives and work. We even get an impromptu reading of a poem by the Indian mystic Kabir, a Thomas Merton quote, and a, as they put it, spiritual vasectomy reversal surgery. Yes. And Yoda, don't forget Yoda. If you're talking about spirituality, you gotta talk about Yoda. <laughs> They also talk about music as a through line during huge life changes. Yeah, yeah, especially on Eve's part, as you mentioned. We also get to hear about being true to your craft, even when it hurts you to let go of who you thought you could be. Josh, they're going deep here. Very deep. There's some psychology going on. For sure. And we hear the sweet words that Jason Molina, the quote, visionary of darkness, shared with Scott. They also touch on the importance of stoking the fire and fluffing the nest, as Scott puts yeah. it. <laughs> Oh, man. And we get this pretty hilarious, deep, deflating story about David Berman of Silver Jews, who became Eve's literal voice of self-doubt. <laughs> Something that, that Berman said kind of to Eve that stuck with him forever. On that note, let's roll the tape. Yeah, let's hear it. Eve kicks things off. All right. So I'll just pepper you with, with some insightful questions. And then, uh, yeah, I'll see where it goes from there. So one thing I wanted to ask you was, what's it like? What's it like during quarantine? What's it like for you not touring? And you're probably not touring this whole year, right? That's what I'm gathering for, for most, most acts, if not all acts. But those of us that play small rooms still have a little flexibility, but, but it doesn't seem like even that's going to happen. It doesn't, does it? Yeah. Is this the longest you've gone and will go without touring for, must be for years and years, right? At this point. Uh, yeah. I'd say since 2002 or one, this is the longest I've ever gone without touring and the longest I've ever gone seeing my wife consecutive days. Oh, man. Like, like for real, like since we were married. <laughs> man, that, uh, that, that brings to mind a whole other flurry of questions. That That's I'm right. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure we want to get into on this on this particular podcast, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So what's it what's it feel like? I mean, does it feel does it feel good? Or are you getting like are you getting cagey as I am? Um, if I am not cagey at all, I am extremely <laughs> content and very happy um, being here. That's right. You're one of the least cagey people I've ever known. Oh, um, <laughs> oh that's great, man. I love. I want to tell you that I love your life so much. I really do. It just makes me feel good inside. Whenever I picture you on the farm with your family, you know, it's it really is. I mean, you you do have a little a little piece of heaven for yourself. I think for sure. 
Well, let me say, uh, it's not all peaches and cream all the time. And um, Well, I'm sure. I totally recognize that, though. That's something that I've, and not just me, but I think us in our group uh, that perform together, it's available to us all to you say it how you will, stoke the fires or or fluff the nest, whatever you would want to say, but to yeah. but to keep a good attention on home. I mean, look, like that makes me think about the metaphor of your home and and our little opportunities on in life and on planet Earth to mimic the kingdom of God, to mimic heaven, our our little pitiful yet sweet attempts at doing so and 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 like addressing that wait a second you know it is it is important for for me to make my little heaven and then that could be you know i was i was telling sarah the other day i was like i don't know that it's necessarily the specific logistics of it all because when i was alone and lived in you know a really run down apartment i i still found a really awesome and I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't aware of it. I didn't recognize it like I should have, and address it like I should have. I really took pride and got off on enhancing textures. Like if that old brick wall outside of my front door was was what it was, you know. I I remember being lucky enough to kind of uh, see that as just a, an incredible moment in space, and so I would lift that up, you know, like. I would look at it when I'd walk by it and think how incredible it was the way that concrete, uh, that, you know, mossy, green, damp concrete met that brick. And then on the back deck, maybe I put a few tomato plants in the terracotta pots and then it became this little, like what you're talking about, this little slice of, of place and little piece of place that, <laughs> that felt really good, you know? And I would live up to whatever my resources were. And I have no idea why. And I know, I, you know, I know you do the same thing. Like, like say, the same question goes for you, Eve. Uh, your touring life is so much different than mine. So there's a different thing to miss there. It's certainly a different thing to miss because yours is a solitary experience, has, has been. So that's a very different thing. So, I mean, I could see that being missed quicker uh, or easier. Oh, I mean, oh, you know, and the Lord made me, he made a rambling man for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I, I got to I, I love being at home, but, uh, but yeah, I ache to be on the, on the road. Yeah. It's been funny. The kind of inverse of my experience to yours after slogging along in, you know, small clubs with a semi-functional band, having to be there at five and sitting around some bar after, you know, after sound check and then going on at 11 and, and then, you know, smoking a bunch of cigarettes and stuff <laughs> at this point as a middle-aged man doing it alone just getting in my rental car and just driving to people's homes, just showing up at seven 30, taking my guitar out, you know, having some potluck chatting with some people playing without even an amp (laughs) and then getting back in my car and driving away by myself. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, you know, it's wonderful to have that. And honestly, I've toured on a bus. I did some Ben Folds tours, you know, years ago, and uh, and I was kind of missing. I was missing the van. I was missing the rental car. Of course, I don't like sleeping on a bus, man. Oh, very. Yeah, it's not cool. I know. At first, it's exciting, but yeah, I, I think after a while. But you know, you play the rooms that that you play. You know what I'm saying? Like that's right. I mean, you go you go where they where they want you to, and you do what, what you got to do. We can never own our success, but we tend to own our failures. Yeah. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, when we become successful, we realize that we're just vessels. We're just lucky as shit. You know, yep. like anytime good things have happened to me, I've been so just awestruck by how lucky, like when some big, whatever thing falls in my lap, I'm like, wow. I mean, but like ultimately your success is beyond any sort of cause and effect, whether you want to assign God to it or not. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. God is a useful word. So I like to use it, but obviously what does that even mean? So you could say the universe, that's like a more secular <laughs> spin. <laughs> um, but then your failures are the things you hold on to forever. You know what I'm saying? And that's, I think, what most people tend to do. I mean, most of the people I've known have, you know, tried to make it as artists slash musicians, whatever. And, you know, most people don't make it. You know what I'm saying? It, there is, that's right. like, nowhere is the 1% to the 99%, you know, fact of life more apparent than in, in the music or in the arts. And, and all the government intervention in the world will never change that. You know what I'm saying? That it just works out that way, that the people at the top get it all and, the, and everyone else, you know, that's just how it is, just by the numbers. And so I've thought about people that I've known for a long time and myself and, and what is the sort of secret to success. <laughs> it's going to be like a real self-help thing. And it really is to just to somehow transcend yourself. You know, if you realize you don't own your success, then you can also not own your failures and just do God's will. What does God will for you to do? Do it. And shut the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? And when I've done that, success, I've been more successful. So it oh, works. Yeah. So I'm here. To, I'm proof that it works. You know, it's not like you have to walk towards God. It's just as you have to walk away from yourself, from your ego, from your idea of yourself, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I do. It's a very Jesus way of, of living. Like it's a, that feels like what Jesus would have was, was saying to us. It really does. And like you said, if it, for whatever words people want to use to describe it, like we have to allow people, we don't allow, I'm saying we have to allow ourselves to honor people for who they are and how they speak, not try to change them into our, uh, <laughs> like, uh, hear them for who they are and honor that and lift that up with whatever else. It's, yeah. it's important. The one thought I had too is, it's such a tiresome debate within the culture between let's say believers and non-believers. Right. But to me, it always struck me as just, this was the metaphor I came up with. Brilliant. It always struck me as like some, like someone prefers Beethoven and someone prefers nine inch nails. Right. Yeah. And they can argue back and forth about what is like real music, you know, and the guy who loves Beethoven, hears nine inch nails and thinks, God, or whatever skinny puppy or, Daft Punk or some <laughs> ungodly, ungodly noise like that. And hears that and goes, oh, that's not music. And they argue forever, eternally. But God is just music. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Neither one of them ever says, oh, but there's no such thing as music. So it's like, that's how I always felt about it. It's like, yeah, I, I used to be an atheist. I don't know what the hell I am, but but I think it's it's not a worthwhile argument in a way. Because even if you say, oh, I don't believe in God, you never escape God's judgment. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this pandemic is God's judgment, you know? And I clicked on this thing I sent you, which I found, I don't even know where I found it. Um, Kabir, like a Sufi poet, I think. I'm not even sure. It says, friend, hope for the guest while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. 
what you call salvation belongs to the time before death. All right, this one gets good. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will rejoin with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten? That is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. <laughs> I, that, I read that, I thought of you completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. No, it's so good. Uh, I love the urgency of it. If anything, maybe that's what organized religion, it falls short when it, all its promises are in the next life. That's right. You know, like people don't need, they need, they need something that works now, you know, today. I think that's right. Hey, it's Ellie again. We here at Talkhouse are really psyched to work with a company like Allbirds. I wear Allbirds running shoes, but my faith in the company was doubled when they asked us to pull the ad that we'd recorded for this week and sent us this statement in its place. Normally, this sponsored read would focus on what Allbirds does as a business and talk about one of our new products. But there's something much more important happening in our country and around the world right now. Acknowledging injustice is not the kind thing to do, it's the right thing to do. As a business, Allbirds has always stood for the planet, and standing for the planet also means standing for its people. We believe that everyone should be able to enjoy all the Earth has to offer without fearing for their lives because of the color of their skin. And while we admit that we're not entirely sure what the right thing to do is at a time like this, we know that just stating our support isn't enough. We need to take action. As a first step, Allbirds has contributed to organizations like the National Movement for Black Lives and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund to support their efforts. We encourage you to demand change and make your voices heard. Black Lives Matter. When I think about the songs that you made for this record, for Forever Just Beyond, you know, there's so much intentionally labeled spiritual music out there, easily found in, in Christian. Uh, I'm not conveniently exposed to other religions as much, but it's not hard to find Christian music. But when I think about music that is both Christian and Buddhist or both Christian and Jewish and both Christian and Muslim or both Muslim and Jewish, but a, a mystic song, you know, and intentionally, not too intentional because it really can't be, but in the realm of contemplative prose, maybe, or contemplative existence, contemplative melody, uh, I know other singers and musicians and, and artists that do this. And in fact, all artists, they all do this in a way. Yeah. But you know, the statement that you were making with all these songs, I think that's in every single one of them, even though they change subject and subject matter, is of a mystic's musing. And... Uh, I think that there's the, to me, I want to say, you know, it's intentional. It, it, this is songs for the mystic, and and I don't think I don't think that's the, all we've heard from Eve, and I don't think it's all you've heard from us. What the danger for me has been: how do you like it becomes agenda? Like, oh, I can just see, you know, I can see it yeah, do exactly. do it again and do it more, and it, and it can't live like that. 
It never lives like that. What's the marketing angle here? Right, right, right. right. How are we going to promote this? Uh, It can't ever live like that. And that's okay because it just can't. But it it wasn't born out of that with you and I. And, um, you know, you've become a master in your craft. And it shows in in the crafting of these melodies in space, you know? (laughs) Well, thanks, man. (laughs) Coming from you, that uh, that, uh, that carries a nice bit of weight. It's true, man. I mean, it's true. (laughs) uh, I'm humbled before you. Like I said before, you know, I've only gotten better at it, I guess, by by letting go of it. The word mystic is just is is right there in the word mystery, which is just what we don't know, which I have a lot of respect for. Like I don't know. There's so much I don't know. I'm I'm humbled before everything that I don't know. And you know, we live in the culture is so full of knowers. Everybody knows something. Everyone's telling you something that they know. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's uh, the information age is not. I I should have lived. I wish I'd lived a thousand years ago, you know, on a clipper ship. I'm not meant for this time. Yeah, I, I, I have a deep longing to pull away from the world. And yeah, I just read uh, Seven Story Mountain when I was driving back from your from your house. Actually, I I, I audibled it. Oh yes, like, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I long to live on a monastery, you know, at this point, especially. Yeah, I, I know, right? I have no worldly desire. I'm so done with this world. But, you know, I still have a family and I got to make a living. And, and yeah, I'm not ready to dissolve back into the ether. But just from my own personal experience, maybe because, you know, I had a strange early childhood being from Israel and then, you know, growing up on a kibbutz, but then moving to New Jersey. And, and so my whole life, like, I've never felt at home in this world. Like, there's never been a place that's, you know what I'm saying? Even in New Jersey, I was like, not quite. A new, you know, I'd go to Israel in the summers, but then I wasn't quite Israeli. <laughs> I was never, you know, I was always in this weird kind of in-between kind of place. So, I mean, maybe that's why I ended up being who I am. I think about that a lot, obviously, like like how we end up who we are. And it's also made me think, yeah, like, who am I really? You know, like one time, I think I was about 19, and I was, you know, I was being nostalgic. And I remember my dad mentioning that he used to record me as a small child. He had all this, like, recording equipment. So I said, oh, I remember you mentioned that. So he pulls out the old quarter-inch, the dusty quarter-inch tape, reel-to-reel, and, like, threads it up. And then this the voice that kind of came out of the the speakers was, like, this little Israeli boy. (laughs) And, And I started crying so intense. I've never cried. I don't think I've ever cried that intensely in my life. I, I mean, whatever. It was one of the most like emotional. And I, it just came out of nowhere. I was just like, huh. and I looked at my parents and they both had like the saddest looks even before I started crying. I mean, I ran to the bathroom and like cried in, in private shame. I felt like that little boy was dead. Like I'm listening to it and that I killed him. Like that was the feeling. I have this overwhelming feeling of guilt, weirdly enough. Um, anyway, so yeah, so my sense of myself and, uh, you know, and I was miserable in my 20s. I mean, I had a stomachache for nine years. I was like, yeah. I didn't know. I was just so lost, you know? Yeah. And all I had was this music. So I do it. I realized at one point that I, I just, like, this is, I have to do this, you know? Like, I have to. Like, even if I'm playing in, in a living room for 30 people or wherever it is, however much money comes in that year, like, I have to do it. And, and yeah, and that's been tough obviously for, for the family and for people around me. And, uh, 
anyway, I don't know. I'm going off on myself too much. Yeah, but that's how you love them. You love them that way by being you. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, this gets psychological, but it, it's it's very true. Exactly. Like I, I can't. I've been doing this for a long as time, and and yeah, there were moments over the last twenty years when I remember when I first met you, I was telling you how I was fantasizing of becoming an EMT. <laughs> you know, I still I still fantasize about that. Like that's real, man. Talk about keeping it real. You know, but but I could never do that. You know, I could never do that, and it pays like shit too, which is so wrong. But anyway. I have to, I just have to do this until I die. Like that's, that's my fate, you know? And in that way, both me and God are satisfied. I feel like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like, yes, this is what you wanted me to do. Like, yes, I didn't want to do anything else. You know, I didn't do good on my SATs. I I probably shouldn't have skipped school so much in high school. All right. Yes. You know, but here we are, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, man, I have three things to say about all that, <laughs> and each one is an essay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I've had way too much coffee this morning. I've I need more. So caffeinated right now. Oh man, um, one you were talking about knowing. Like, I agree with you. I think that we worship knowing. Like our culture worships knowing. Like that is where, like, when we look at stats, when we look at numbers, when we look at what's going on, like that's more important than. What can we do within to deal with what's going on? We think that if we know more, that we'll be good. And eventually we'll know so much that we'll have it all covered. That's impossible. And I think intelligence is, is a must. I don't think it's bad to want to know everything, to want to know as much as possible. Um, it's just that we try to know the wrong things. I'm convinced that as I watch my children grow and I think about the knowledge that's being pumped into their brains, I start thinking the most important knowledge they need to know is are things like, how do I feel when someone points out an inferior aspect to my being? How do I process being slower or less in, in some aspect of life? How am I me? How do I know myself? That's the most important work that we can do and leading into that the second thing that i would say is like your expression i said one thing i admire about what like you're doing it i read about john hartford doing it back in the day he didn't write as much music in his second half of life what he did was say i'm gonna swing this hammer and it's gonna be me playing old-time songs on the fiddle and the banjo and i'm just, just gonna dig into that to no end and in that commitment he ended up making this like insanely creative version of all that music, you know, like insanely. So with you, uh, you know, he's just another singer songwriter, right? But through that commitment comes these insanely creative and, and groundbreaking expressions. And through the commitment is where, and, and my therapist taught, taught me this first. She's the one that said, you don't find freedom in endless options. You find freedom in commitment. Yes, absolutely. And that blew my mind, blew my mind. And that aspect, something like a pandemic where you're confined to home, you start going, wait a second, if I commit to a few things while I'm in this, all of a sudden you start finding these groundbreaking you like little pockets of universe exploding and expanding all around you in this little moment because you've committed. And so for, for you in your life, you know, and for me, I I used to talk about, Oh, I'm going to be a farmer maybe. And, uh, I have been very lucky basically because of some of the things my father did 
to have land around me that we should be good stewards of. But me being a full-time farmer, that is not commitment to my craft, which is music and art, uh, which is creating uh, in that realm. So I had to, I had to say, okay, whether I'm good at it or not, which I doubt I am good at farming, but uh, I cannot, you know, that's not a commitment. You know, it looks wholesome on, on paper, but it actually would be very uh, detrimental to me. Um, and the third thing was what you just said about crying about that recording. It reminded me of something that I, I've done since I can remember. And it's something I've had to put in check in second half of life. And it would happen a lot when I would drink. Uh, it, it was at its height in my uh, early 20s while I was in art school. Uh, I would go to this Mexican restaurant on Monday nights and they had pitchers. They had Dolceki's pitchers. And I would, we would just, we would just belly up and eat chips and drink beer for three hours, you know, or four hours or whatever, which is just ludicrous in its, in its own right. You know, just, it's really crazy behavior to make that a habit, you know, it's just crazy. And, uh, but it was a total habit, but the most sincere thing that would happen or the most memorable thing, it was all sincere. I would go to the bathroom many times through a night that I'd be drinking that kind of beer. And I would find myself standing in front of the mirror, <laughs> looking and looking. And I, maybe a lot of people do this. I think they do, but I want to just say it. I would look and then I would intentionally try to separate my soul from my, from who I was looking at, you know, like I would look until <laughs> at times I would be grossed out by who I saw, not because I thought, Ooh, ugly, sick, yuck. But maybe grossed out in, in the way that it looks so unfamiliar and that how could this be? I've written about this, uh, in songs, but I mean, I would stare and stare until I would feel removed from who I was looking at. Like, who is that? Who is that? That's not me. That's not me. And nobody here is me. Like, that's not me. And I didn't make a lot of it except just, imagination and something that I did. But when I look back now, like those little moments, like you're talking about, like hearing and being and weeping, knowing there's a, you know, like Eckhart Tolle says, there is a me and then there is a, a myself, you know, and then speaking of Thomas Merton, you know, true self, false self, you know, like there's all that's wrapped up in it. I, they articulate it so well and they're, they're great guides in it um, to really formulate it. But, uh, Man, all three of those things, and I'm sure that that got you thinking. I bet you have similar similar experiences. Yeah, man. I, well, I've had similar experiences, but on different substances. You know? <laughs> not, uh, not on beer. Not Dolceckis. Beer. Beer didn't do it to me. Don't get me wrong. I'd have just been. I'd have been growing up. I am very sensitive. I am. <laughs> no, I know, but it, it is. It is like a. I can't. What's the word? You know, like a like a screen. Some people's screen is just really gunky and some people's it's just not so gunky or some event occurs and kind of blows, the, you know, and you see, like you see clearly, you know, and I, I think, yeah, I've had I've intimations. One of the weirdest moments I ever had, like, I swear to God, this was when I was nine years old and it was the Dukes of Hazard premiered. I remember because I was so excited and I love the Dukes of Hazard, 1979, third grade. And then after, I don't know what this had to do with the Dukes of Hazard, but it happened the same night. I got into bed and I closed my eyes and I just, I only saw white. 
I can't explain it beyond that, but it was this really strange feeling. And it was a kind of out of body feeling. It was more just a feeling. It wasn't like I could see myself, whatever. But it was the first time I just had this sense of, yeah, I don't, you know, just a sense of something, I don't know, beyond myself, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then ever since then, I've just been kind of weird. I'm kind of a weird guy, I guess. Um, <laughs> whatever. But you know what I'm saying? I do. I used to love it when people called me weird. I, I don't think we are that weird, actually. But uh, first off, a disclaimer. Don't get me wrong. Beer wasn't the exact variable. Just like you said, it didn't take beer. Just, <laughs> I, would, I would find it being enhanced when I, I guess, probably when you would be drinking, your, your guard was down a little more, right? And time starts to be less of a thing. That might be a good thing, even though the habit of drinking beer in that quantity is 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 really detrimental for me. But but that would happen as a kid without any help at all. Um, and I think that's well something that would happen a lot as a kid was I would just take time to just be, and I you know I might I might have a point like I might be playing a certain you know setting up action figures or something. I would be doing something, but eventually it would end in me just sort of laying. We had a garden that would be plowed up and I might just lay there and just look to the sky, which led right into, you know, teenage years. One of my main things was to get to a field and just stargaze, you know, all night if I could. Happened all the all the time. I mean, stargazing was like, that was one of my uh, priorities, one of my top hobbies, just to be with all that bigness and that that unknown. You do. You're so you're, you are like a seer, like you look into things. I think more carefully than maybe most people. And it makes perfect sense that you would, you would be the painter that you are, you know, that you're, and that you paint people. You're always like trying to see, right. That's that line. I wrote that line for you. Well, maybe not for you, but it wasn't <laughs> part yeah. of my, heaven, heaven spread all around us, you know, maybe too close to see oh, yeah. like, uh, you know, that, uh, that reminds me of you. Um, oh, so nice. So nice. All right, wait, I had, I had one more good question. All right, so all right, this might, the thing that I always wanted to ask you, even before we met, and I don't want to set it up too much, but all right, so obviously we're talking about the culture and how, you know, there is, I mean, I've heard it described as like the meaning crisis. Like we can define it in spiritual terms or political or, you know, cultural, but it's all really the same shit, you know? People long for meaning maybe now more so than ever just because they got so much more time on their hands. One of the things I love about you guys and, and, and what you do, I feel like you do perform kind of religious, you feel a religious yearning for people that maybe aren't necessarily getting it from, from like Sunday church service, whatever. Are you aware of that? Like, do you ever think of it in those ways? And if so, like, how do you sort of treat that responsibility? That's a big question for you there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so that means that in uh, playful terms, you are like a traveling spiritual nomad and we would be like uh, <laughs> the uh, mega church evangelists <laughs> traveling around. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, right. there's, there's some funny truth to that, but you know, I don't take it all. I don't take all that too. I mean, right. You're, you're putting on a rock and roll show. Ultimately. I don't mean to, you know, no, no, I got to do it. Yeah, it doesn't. And it doesn't sound, it's not, it's appreciated and it's, and it's been alluded to and, and definitely implied before. The, th the thing is, is that we just are 
what we are, and you can you understand this. You've seen how things unfold for you and I. This is exactly how the band unfolded. It's just been a longer period, and so it's grown in the best way that we could let it grow appropriately to its its size and relationship with with all things. Man, I, I wanted to mention this. I wasn't sure if there would be an opportunity to, but there sort of does fall into place here. Um, I saw that uh, Secretly Canadian was going to put out a, a Jason Molina record that hadn't been released. Yeah. You know, what a special writer and a special, you know, just, just songster and, and visionary of life and, and sad, sad person, a vis- visionary of darkness. But he, yeah. he said, we were playing a tour with Magnolia Electric Company and, and uh, they were opening for us at the Fillmore in San Francisco. I think it was, it might've been two nights. And uh, he said something to me, he was trying to express, he was like, he was saying, you did it. Like you, I don't know, remember his exact words, but he, he was kind of saying, I've been miffed at how to be me and, and do what I do and be able to let it live in a way that was bigger than just what it is. Like, how could I go out and present it to more people without it being compromised? And he was saying, oh, man, I really valued the way he he put it to me. And um, it was very unguarded and very sweet. And, uh, you know, how graceful and awesome and plain spoken as well. His songs are. This was more awkward and even more honest in a beautiful, awkward way. But um, for us, it's been about letting it grow naturally and always trusting that if we just keep it local in our brains and in our existence and how we write and express, then it will always be universal and global in how it's received. So keeping those feelings that we have very close and small, keeping them there because we just trust that everybody has those, those intimate relationships with themselves and with, with what it is, the universe or God. And so I think that is spiritual. And so, of course, we have a spiritual connection to anyone that we come in contact with and and perform for. It is, to me, it is. Art and performance are our spiritual duty, um, and they're wrapped up. God is wrapped up in every last bit of it. And it's so mysterious and so impossible for me to understand and really articulate. It's once again, it's ridiculous to to try, and I, I'm I'm an addict to trying to do it. You know, I love I love trying, and uh, but it's funny. Yeah. I can metaphorically look at it like you're this, you are, you're like the, that nomad or that monk. But spiritual nomad is better because of your rambling needs. You're going into homes and doing it, and that's like instead of blunt force, it's like a very uh, scalpular sort of uh, precise uh, to to right. you know to freeze up the wordage a little bit. <laughs> Vasectomy reversal surgery. Exactly. <laughs> that's uh oh man. That's when my first, when we first started touring through the south. Uh, that's all I remember was the, all the vasectomy reversal surgery billboards. Wow. <laughs> wow. wow. Sorry, that's a totally weird tangent. But I love that you're talking about that exchange with uh, with Melina. That's that's pretty amazing. It was special. All right, so two things I, I want to throw in there, and then I think we only have, I don't have that much more time. But uh, one thing I realized getting older is that you don't, like you keep saying playful, like your relationship to the the muse, let's say, 
is just inherently maybe playful and joyful. Whereas I think a lot of people connect to the muse through their suffering and think that that's the only way into it, or that's what makes it real, or that's what, and I was definitely one of those people. Like I came to it more as a way to, to alleviate my existential suffering, I guess. I have a similar experience with someone very much like Melina that was, uh, that was Dave Berman, right? You know Dave Berman at all? Do you know the Silver Jews? Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, so I moved, all right, so I'll, I'll tell this story quickly. So I moved to Nashville right about 15 years ago, and I started working with Mark Nevers. God bless him. Uh, and Mark Nevers does Lamb Chop and Silver Jews. And without even knowing it, I was kind of copying Dave Berman. <laughs> like Dave Berman had already moved to Nashville, and he was working with Nevers, and he was like the sort of, you know, cynical, lyrical, Jewy dude. And so I came to town like, uh and and I think he was kind of a little pissed about it. So he came, one of the early sessions I had with Nevers, and I wasn't working on anything good at all at the time, just like I wasn't in a particularly good place, but I had some songs and I was trying to put them together. So he just like pops in, hey, you mind if I hang out? You know, sure. Deeper. I don't even met him like once or twice before. And I moved to Nashville it's all anybody could talk about, at least in the little scene that I stumbled into. It was Berman this, but everyone had their Berman stories. And uh, larger than life. So he's, there he is, and we're hanging out, and we're listening to the playback on that, this song called I Believe Your Lies. And uh, it was like, you know, tell me something. I can't remember the words, but it was like, you know, I believe your lies was the gist of it. And And we're just sitting there. He's like two feet away from me, and he kind of says it, not even to me, but just kind of to himself. He goes some he's like some fucking college kid's gonna think that's really deep you know like the most cutting like dismissive way <laughs> and uh, and i almost pretended like i didn't hear him i was like mm, yeah you know like or maybe i laughed it off and man I, I i kid you not for the next 10 to 15 years he was the voice of my self-doubt right uh, like yeah. every time i would doubt myself which was often when shit wasn't going well for me I, I had, he came up in my mind, you know, Berman, like he was the real deal. You know, he really, he had books of poetry published. He was like legit. And, uh, and then the motherfucker hangs himself like six months ago. He hangs himself. So like the, the embodiment of my self-doubt hung himself. So I'm free. That's right. Am I? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I've been thinking about that a lot. Like a lot, like why did he hang himself, you know? And it kind of goes in with what you're talking about with Melina, like let go, man. Like, yeah, kill yourself, but don't kill your body. Yeah. Kill yourself in your mind. Yeah, that's it. You're not your body. You don't get to kill your body. God owns your body, not you. Just try and take care of it. Yeah, go for a fucking walk, do some push-ups. you know? Yeah. Drink some homemade <laughs> ginger beer. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's partly what I realized as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, anyway, so to it. I think we're almost out of time. But yeah, let me hear what what you got to say, man. I don't. I don't know. I, I think. Well, I think that you just saying there's definitely a self. Like I'm, I'm like with you on that. I always want to be loving to these bodies that are gone. I want to be. I don't want to. I don't want to be angry at them. But I think you just nail it when you say you have to kill something in yourself. Like something does have to die. Yes, yes. Something has to die. I was thinking beyond that going, well, I don't know if you you can actually even kill it, depending on what we're talking about. But I know that the that, that little false self in me, that little 
the little me or the false self, I wonder often, am I capable of killing it? I doubt it. Will it ever die completely? I hope, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But we're saying the same thing. And Richard Rohr is a great example of, you know, he'll tell, he'll say it in a way that he's like, every great teacher that really knows what they're saying has died before they die. They've had a death before. And, and I, I'll take that in, in small increments. I think it happens daily. I really do. I think it happens daily in each all of us and in little increments throughout life. And some people's death is massive and very young and they live through it or they don't. Their body lives through it or they don't. And uh, I think that it happens for most of us in little ways for a long time. And uh, what I said to you a couple weeks ago when we were together uh, doing the Tiny Desk concert is that uh, the admiration that I have for you and uh, for others like you is, is that you are a student of life that is awake to that learning and awake to that journey. And uh, whether you're good at it or not is never going to be the thing. There's a line that I wrote that I was thinking, I got to send this to Eve and I I will after we talk about this, but it said uh, in this exact realm, man, the line says, Yoda was full of shit. There is no do. There is only try. That's it. You know, there is only try. <laughs> so that's only try. And to speak against Yoda, you know, if you if you go against Yoda, you're in trouble. A <laughs> little green bastard. Barzalay, Scott Avitt, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, there's a few conversations between singer-songwriters that also focus on spirituality, and we want to share those with you. There's Torres with Brandy Carlisle, as well as Pedro the Lion's Dave Bazan with Tom Berlin. You can find TalkHouse on all your favorite social channels at TalkHouse. While we usually credit professional engineers, Josh, every voice that the listeners have heard today was recorded by the person speaking. That goes for Scott, Eve, yourself, and me, all working from our respective hashtag stay home studios. Our producer is Mark Yoshizumi. The TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Range. Our researcher for today's show was Samantha Small. Till next week, I'm Elia Einhorn. And I'm Josh Modell. Thanks for listening, and may God hold you in the palm of his hand. <laughs> Peace.